Hey everybody, it's Serial Killer Country. My name is Brittany Ransom. And my name is Brian Joyner. And this is When Killers Get Caught, a podcast devoted to deep dives into the lives and psyches of the killers we love to learn about. Each week, Brian and I find a true crime story that resonated with us. Then I'll discuss one well-known or lesser-known killer and go deep into their childhood, lives, methodology, and most importantly, how they got caught. And then we get a little spooky and learn something about cryptids or the supernatural. And before we start, I just want to remind everybody listening that our Patreon is live. We have multiple tiers starting from $5 all the way up to $50. You can get everything from merch discounts to Patreon-only Discord chat, a free podcast about conspiracy theories every week, and the ability to listen to us record live. You can also buy merch through the website at www.whenkillersgetcaught.com. We carry crop tops, hats, stickers, regular t-shirts, and we carry up to a size 5X for inclusivity. So if you want to support us, this is the easiest way to do <laughs> and I want to give one more little like, I guess, uh, announcement before we start, which is that next week's podcast, I won't be here. I'm so sorry. You'll be stuck with me. And it's because I'm going on vacation. Uh, and I haven't really <clears throat> been able to do that for a long time. So I'm very excited. Yeah. So you're going to get a Brian only episode uh, for the first week in September. You're going to deal with it. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> You're going to love it. I swear you'll love it. I guarantee it. Well, there you go. <laughs> so this week in true crime, on roughly, well, first, this is wild because I didn't know that the FBI, like, there's the most wanted fugitive list, right? Mm -hmm. I thought the people on that list were like, big time monster killers right apparently they're not because this past week the fbi raided a house searching for this 82 year old fugitive who's on the top 10 most wanted list Ooh, what, um, do do? what do they do well his name is eugene palmer and he's accused of murdering his daughter-in-law in 2012 after she accused his son of domestic violence so in like retribution Okay. For an accusation, he murdered her. Oh. So federal agents raided the home in New York of the granddaughter, of his granddaughter. Um, I guess there was a tip that he may have been seen there. And so the granddaughter's very upset. Um, apparently, after he murdered his daughter-in-law, mm. he disappeared into the woods. Oh. And it hasn't been seen since. So he turned into a mountain man, basically. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because despite the accusations of domestic violence, the woman in question did stay in the household. Mm -hmm. um, we don't know why. And oh. then Eugene killed her. So there's nothing else that could be done at that point. Or did, wait, she she didn't leave the son, is what you're saying? No, she didn't leave him, okay. which uh, I guess that I does mean, happen. Yeah, I was about to say, domestic violence, you know, victims, they're, you know, it's not really hard to leave. But yeah, he was, uh, so the tip said that he had been seen. It's not easy to leave, my God, I'm sorry. I know, I understand what <laughs> you mean. Um, apparently after he killed his daughter-in-law, he went to his sister's house, told her that he did it. Uh, and then he went into the woods. They found his 1995 Dodge Ram truck empty. Mm -hmm. And uh, on Tuesday, this past Tuesday, a tip alleging that he had been in his granddaughter's home uh, led them to Warwick in Orange County, New York. Palmer was not there. 
And his granddaughter, Jamie Lynn Rose, got very upset and started making posts on social media about this, which is how it popped up on my feed. Um, She said, they were in the tree on my roof. They handcuffed me and my children. They raided my house, broke my furniture. They pointed guns at my seven-year-old child. Oh, never mind. Yeah, see, see, when you first said that, you know, they came to her house and she was upset about it, I was like, well, you shouldn't have had your granddad there. He wanted. Who knows if he was there or not? Like, we don't know. He might have already left. Exactly. And that that was the thing. And then you point guns at seven-year-olds, too. And so the FBI was like, listen, we respond to every lead, call, or tip with all the appropriate resources as we seek to locate dangerous fugitives, and we take every legal precaution to assure the safety of citizens and law enforcement when responding. Um, I mean, you never know. Seven-year-old could be, like, running at him like Chucky with a knife. So. I don't think that. I think I, she might probably be a little bit overacting. I don't think they were pointing them at her kid, but they had them mm. and they cuffed the kid. I feel like cuffing the kid is a little that, yeah, that's excessive. A little much. Cuffing the woman who you think is hiding her grandfather, that's understandable. Not, yeah. But yeah. Um, also, the other thing is that like people are speculating whether he's even alive anymore. He would be like 85 years old now. So they're like, Really, even if he is like the best like hunter and survivalist, is he really going to survive in the wilderness for another 10 years? And not like in any wilderness, but like he disappeared into the New York wilderness, which leads into the Canadian wilderness. Yeah, I don't know. And it's cold out there. I was going to say, Canada gets real cold. So it's cold out there and there's COVID out there. And, you know, well, at least if you're in the woods, you're away from COVID. This is true. I should have done this this whole year. Past two years. Yeah. But yeah, I thought that was an interesting little that, tidbit. It was really interesting for me because I I was like, he only killed one person. Why is he on like the fugitive list? How yeah, weird. that's weird. And he's like, oh, like, yeah. I'm like, listen, just well, let that old man just die in the woods. They gonna find his remains one day. Like, you'll just yeah, top ten, huh? It makes me want to know who's the top ten wanted right now. Oh my god. I mean, I should look that up. Well, while you look that up, let me get into my story. Alrighty. <clears throat> this takes place in Alabama. Um, huh, I don't know how to start this. I'm just going to read the headline. Okay. Uh, a, a man is shot in his home by his wife's boyfriend, who was secretly living there. So, <laughs> this reminds me of a movie I watched. <clears throat> this literally reminds me of a movie I just watched on Netflix like last week. Really? Yes. What's it called? I don't know. I was like, um, watch it. Is it Van? Is it Vanished? No, 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 no. It's not Vanished. I'll have to look. Okay, but, but the uh, I won't tell you. But yeah, but that yeah, was part of it. This this happened uh, this past Sunday. Okay. Um. <clears throat> The man's, uh, the husband's name, his name is Frank Reeves. He was shot in the chest by a 53 year old uh, man named Michael Amaker. I'm gonna, that's that's where I'm going with Amaker. All right. Um, in his house. So apparently, his wife, <clears throat> his wife comes to him, comes to um, Frank, and she's like, there's an intruder in the house. So you gotta deal with him. Oh. So, of course, we're Alabama, and they're like, okay, let me get my gun, because someone's in my house, I'm going to shoot him. <clears throat> he finds, you know, uh, Mr. Michael here, and Michael has a gun as well. 
Of course. So they both shoot each other. Okay. Uh, so Michael gets shot in like the leg, but Frank gets shot in the chest. Ooh. <clears throat> so <laughs> there's an investigation, of course, on this. And, you know, after a while, it turns out that, th- that this intruder has actually been living in his house over the past year. And it's his wife's boyfriend, who he had no idea about. Um, so apparently his wife uh, was secretly delivering food to him. And he just tried to, like, stay under the radar in the house, I guess. And then, like, it says that he had, like, he had uh, bottles of urine of where he was staying. I don't know. Like, so he didn't, like, while well, the husband was gone like go take those and pour them out in the toilet it's just this is weird this is weird hopefully they had lids Hmm? hopefully they had lids on those bottles i mean i would i would assume so hopefully listen you never know they probably explode all that ammonia in there (laughs) (laughs) but it says that um so the wife uh her name is tracy reeves and uh michael were both High on uh, meth that night. Of course. And I guess this is how it all started. Anything can happen when you're high on meth. (laughs) This is true. (laughs) But yeah, it's just like, I saw the story and I was like, well, that's weird. Let me me know about, tell me more about this. But yeah, apparently you can have, like, guys, check check your crawl spaces. That is that is something. You never like it. That just reminds me, of like, like these creepy stories I hear of like someone just living in someone else's like apartment or like their house and being well, there undetected. was the woman in in Japan yeah. who was living in the behind the cupboard in his kitchen, and she would come out, and he didn't. He was like, "Why is my food going missing?" Yes, you know. Um, so that was a thing, and then like. They could be like living in your in your freaking attic for all you know, and then you're like, "Well, why is there scratching? Oh, it's just probably like rats or something, or you know, or like a mouse a mouse in my attic. You know, just living in there for the winter." No, nah, no, nah, that's a that's a guy who found your door unlocked and decided, "Hey, this is where I'm going to stay for the rest of- <laughs> for a while," and then eventually just. You know, just sneak your food upstairs. <laughs> well, yeah. Like, was she just making him like, oh, this is, there's a lot of questions I have for this lady. Yeah. Just I'll, a lot of questions. I don't know why she let him stay there. Maybe, I don't know. Do you say it was her boyfriend? Yeah. I mean. So... Bop, 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 bop. Yeah, but. You had your husband in the house for that Obviously bop bop. Obviously, she wasn't. <laughs> oh my god. Oh yeah, that's what I got today. You know, time. so I'm like, that's the situation. Okay, so the movie is called Aftermath, and it features Ashley Green from uh, Twilight. She was Alice and uh, Sean Ashmore, who I cannot differentiate between him and his brother. Uh, um, they're twins, and I at one point thought they were one person. And I was like, man, I love that guy from Warehouse 13. And then I was like, oops, it's a different man entirely. They just look the same. But regardless, so like, screw it. I'm going to spoil part of the movie for you. 
um, there, there's two different weird things happening in this movie. Mm. They move into the place after like somebody died because the husband is like a crime scene cleanup dude. Mm. So there's a whole situation going on with someone who wants them to leave the house for a separate reason. And they're like sabotaging their life there. Then there's another situation where the previous owner's wife had the house built specifically so her lover could live within the walls. That's just fucking. That's yeah. That's a plot. That's a plot point that made a lot of people actually really angry. Yeah. But I'm like, apparently, it's really happening in the world. Like maybe, I don't know. Like there I don't were know. like secret doors and yeah, everything. Yeah. I don't know what their house looked like in Alabama. Um, but maybe they did have like a big house and they get like hide away in. Well, the thing is, like that's what I'm saying. I think like this this movie took. Because this is like, you know, inspired by a true story. And so the one aspect of the plot is directly based on a couple who bought a house in California and like awful stuff started happening to them. Yo, I think I remember that story. Not the watcher. That was in New Jersey. This happened in California. And these people started like doing stuff like posting weird stuff about them on Craigslist and Facebook. No, okay. And like saying they were like neo-Nazis and trying to make the neighbors hate them. Oh my God. All sorts of stuff to make them like give up the house so that he could buy it. What the fuck? That happened in California. So that's loosely, this movie's loosely based off of that. But then I think they took the other actual horror of the people living in other people's houses accidentally. Mm. There's another story that happened in the 80s where there was a man living in somebody's attic and he ended up killing the owners. That sounds weird. Um, but no, no, no. There's another story. Yeah, his name was Theodore Coney. Oh, okay. I'd he lived in up. these people's attic and he they he killed the homeowner. Oh, damn. No, there's another story. I heard re- not recently, but like in the past few months um this family I, I forget where it's from this family they had gone on vacation or something oh. and um they come back and then their house is kind of like trash and they <sighs> find that someone was in there mm-hmm. and they had left some bodily fluids oh gross awesome from their yeah um around yeah i gotta look this story up because i got i forget no absolutely i'd love to hear about <laughs> yeah, it yeah i forget where it's from but yeah when killers get caught is sponsored by the magic class boutique now why does that name sound so familiar well it's because it's a business ran by our very own Brittany. That's right, the Magic Class Boutique is not only a black-owned business, it's a woman-owned as well. This is a jewelry company that makes some pretty awesome earrings, ranging from cute little sushis to spooky mermaid skeletons. There are even adorable self-defense keychains for those just-in-case moments. And introducing the Serial Collection. This set of earrings is based off of serial killers and the official merch for the podcast this collection features everything a serial killer would need to pull off their crimes from hunting knives at the beginning of their crimes to warden keys for when they eventually get caught check out the magicclass.com today where you can use our promo code caught to receive 15 percent off of your online order that's t-h-e 
M-A-G-I-C-C-L-A-S-P.com and use promo code CULT for 15% off. And make sure you tell Brittany that I sent you. So this week's story is a long time coming. One that one of my oldest followers and a moderator on TikTok has wanted me to cover for a very long time. Oh, We would know him as uh, Hams, 1976. Yep, it's Hams. And all I can say is that uh, I hope I do it justice. Okay. So I'm going to start by setting the stage for you. It's fall. 1994 a little boy runs through the house brings his mother a human skull he found it in the woods on their 18 acre farm estate where he and his two siblings and his mom and dad live this estate is known as fox hollow farm the little boy his name is eric takes the skull to his mom and the two go into the woods he shows her an entire pile of bones that he found enough to make up a full human skeleton the mom julie asks her husband about it and he tells her it's just a medical school skeleton nothing to worry about so julie goes back to her eleven thousand square foot tudor mansion outside of indianapolis and she ignores her intuition two years later she'd learned the truth about those bones and the truth about her husband herbert bowmeister Mm. Not only was her husband a killer, but he was the I-70 strangler, and police have been looking for him since 1992 in a string of homosexual homicides and disappearances of gay men in the area. There's just so much to unpack about the story and this man and the roughly 11 to 21 murders that he is suspected of committing, as well as hauntings that have been reported on Fox Hollow Farm. Ooh. So... We'll start at the beginning. Got some creepy in there, too. Nice. I figured you would like that, too. I'd dabble <laughs> a little bit in your area of expertise. <laughs> I like it. So Herbert Richard Bowmeister was born on April 7th, 1947, to anesthesiologist Herbert Bowmeister Sr. and his wife Elizabeth in the Butler-Tarkington area of Indiana. Uh, Herbert Sr. was a very successful anesthesiologist. I don't know how you can be an especially successful anesthesiologist, but apparently you can become, like, renowned. And that was Herbert Sr. He didn't mess up any... um... Yeah, maybe he was just the best at it, you know? If you want to go under, you want Herbert. Yep, yep. If you want some drugs in your system, guess what? You got this guy right here. Well, Herbert was the first of four children. Second in line was his sister, Barbara, then Brad, and then Richard. Um, And after four kids, the house was a little small, so they moved to a more affluent area of Washington Township, which is a little bit north of Indianapolis. Uh, As a child, Herbert was a pretty silly kid. He was a practical joker who really tried to make his family laugh whenever he noticed they were sad. He was described, at least when he was very young, as caring and sensitive. His his dad spent a lot of time working and wasn't around the house a lot, so he and his mom's best buddies Mm -hmm. herb was only one of the kids who remembered what it was like to not live in washington on township the rest of them only knew like wealth and privilege and i think that was important in forming part of his worth work ethic at least he did well in school he had friends he was by no means the popular kid but among his friends he was well liked and while his family was wealthy he liked to make his own little pocket change and things were going Pretty awesome for Herb. 
and then puberty hit and everything changed for him doesn't always i don't know if many of our listeners know but uh puberty is often the time when mental illness begins to present itself in children the change can sometimes be very quick with like extreme mood swings or it can be more like what happened with herb which was gradual he had a lot of like new impulses he didn't understand his family noticed that his practical jokes took a, a nastier turn. It was less about making the family laugh and more about amusing himself, sometimes in rude ways. Hmm. He showed no interest in girls in school at all. And as a solid nerd, he very early on realized he was never going to be like popular like the jocks in middle school or high school. Instead of being interested in girls, Herb got really into the morbid and gross. Like, it was really common for him to just be sitting at lunch with the boys and blurt out something like, I wonder what pee tastes like. Do you think it tastes better cold in the fridge or, like, directly from the source? And the boys would be like, oh, ew, gross, Herb. And then he would, like, chase them around and be like, come on, give me a drink. You know, (laughs) which was not seen as crazy when you're 12. No, not at all. It's it's scampish. (laughs) Yeah. And so because, like, the boys thought he was funny for all of his, like, gross jokes... Um, it actually kind of became a game among his friends, which was whoever could ignore Herb the longest, mm. like, won. Because if Herb knew that you were bothered by what he said, then he was going to do more to you. Right, right, yeah. Um, interestingly enough, he he kind of realized, like, oh, I can talk about this stuff and people won't be mad at me. So that only kind of encouraged it. Mm-hmm. Around this time, he also began his experimentation with dead things. It started with him walking around like the area where he was and he would like find roadkill and he would uh, take it apart and touch it. And even if like some of his friends like walked up on him and saw it, they had to pretend like they were unfazed because if they were like, Oh, that's disgusting herb. Then they would find a dead bird or an old squirrel in their backpack. Oh no. Yeah. Um worms in your lunchbox, Ugh. other sorts of things like that. It was never so malicious as to make them angry. He was just considered to be the class clown with a weird sense of humor. No, that's not no. <laughs> no. <laughs> if dead bird in my backpack, no thank you. As he started really delving more into like his darker thoughts, he started to fall behind in school. And he started getting in trouble for doing things like putting dead ravens on teachers' desks or peeing on teachers' desks. And since everybody knew that that was the kind of stuff he talked about, he was the obvious suspect and then his parents would get contacted. His parents were like, listen, no worries. I'm, you know, I'm a, a doctor. I'm going to look for a specialist for him. And then his dad would absolutely do nothing. What? No. <clears throat> and this was Excuse the cycle me. that continued all through adolescence. Excuse me, but no, what? No, no, no. As soon as the teacher like brings something up to you, like your kid's doing this. Your kid peed on my desk. I, That's so weird. They put a dead bird into my desk. Please do something to help him. He has. Well, in fact, Herbert Sr. did less than that. He created a medical paper trail that created like referrals to referrals to referrals to referrals so that Herbert was never seen because he didn't want his son to be branded with the stigma of mental illness. And he's like, whatever, he'll grow out of this. 
And like, here's the thing, like psychiatry is still not always seen in a positive light. We've been pushing really hard in 2020, you know, in the, the now time. Yeah, yeah. You know, so in the 50s and 60s, <laughs> it wasn't really seen in a good light. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, if they had been able to diagnose his real issue at like 12 or 13 or 14, mm-hmm. he probably would have been put in a facility for life because that's what we did in the 50s. He would have been treated with electroshock therapy, probably given a lobotomy, sedated for the rest of his life. Mm. Um, like no one was going to diagnose a 14-year-old with schizophrenia. We don't do it now, honestly. It has to be extreme cases to identify children with very the the more serious this is mental true. illnesses. Yeah, they do. They do like to wait. Like a, like maybe a couple years ago, I had a kindergartner with what it was referred to as pediatric bipolar. That was the first time I'd ever seen it in my entire life. That's first time I heard. Wow. <clears throat> and the worst part about it is that you know you're dealing with a kid who has behavior issues yeah and you just know that this is going to be a hard life for him because the problem he's going to have now he's going to have for the rest of his life mm. you're going to be on meds you're going to eventually get used to the meds they're gonna have to put you on new meds and we dealt with that just during the school year so it kind of it was it was rough i felt bad for him i still think about him yeah i hope he's doing all right um sometime in high school herb's childhood friends kind of had enough they were like, listen, this is way past normal. And like, sure, we were laughing about this when we were all in like fifth grade, but yeah, not, really. not, not anymore. Yeah. His teachers realized that his parents weren't going to do anything. Um, and his dad was making a point to stay away from home as often as possible. The only person who really seemed to care was his mom, but his mom found him to be disgusting. And anytime he got in trouble at school for doing something gross, she would just cry. Not so she didn't like know what to do with it. She was just like, what's wrong with my kid? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of frustrating. This is about the time that Herb learned how to compartmentalize himself. And he started trying to learn how to pretend to be like a regular person. He wasn't great at it, especially not as a teenager, but he began mimicking the people around him so that he wouldn't be ostracized. Sociopaths do that, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. He knew that talking about and touching dead things was not okay to do or talk about around regular people. He knew that the sexual feelings he was having about other boys was not okay to talk about around other people. So the best he could do was make, you know, his outrageous jokes. And sometimes they were legitimately funny. And people would be like, ah, they'd be shocked and they'd laugh. And that was like his one moment of authenticity in a day. (laughs) Um, sometimes people thought he was really funny. Other times the joke fell fat, flat and he kind of felt that like pang of otherness from the people he was trying to make friends with. He spent his final year in high school trying really hard to fit in, but he was, he was hopeful that after high school, there would be a new start, mm-hmm. new people. He started college in the fall of 1965 at Indiana university, far from home. His family's reputation couldn't really protect him. From the backlash that his weird behavior brought onto him. And very quickly, he was ignored in his classes and ostracized. And he quit before the first semester was even over. Oh, wow. As to be expected, Herbert Sr. was not very happy about this. And he tried very hard to, like, harass his son to go back to school for the spring semester. Um, When that didn't work, he pulled some strings and he got Herbert a job as an entry-level... Uh, copy boy at the Indianapolis Star. 
Um, it's a pretty simple job. Uh, in the day and age before we had computers, where when a reporter was done typing up their story, the copy boy would pick up the document and then take it over to the editorial department or to whoever needed to, you know, look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, he showed up every day in a suit and did his best to do his job. He tried to network with the higher ups, but they were like, mm, leave me alone. Oh, 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 poor guy. Many on staff actually found him to be very annoying. But the head of advertising, Gary Donna, thought his off-color jokes were funny. And whenever anybody complained, Gary was like, listen, that's just Herb. What are you talking about? That's just Herb. Don't worry about it. Now, while Herb wasn't a jock, he did realize in college that knowing about sports helped him gain social capital. And so he began learning about and watching the sports so he could talk to people in the office. And so one time, Gary and a couple of his friends were going to go to the Indiana State football game. And he was like, oh, I'll take you. And so um, it wasn't. It's not good. What? No. No, he's trying to fit in now. What do you mean? No. No. Because he showed up in a chauffeur's hat. Oh, my God. Uh, In a what? He had found out a way to finagle and purchase a hearse. Yo, tell me how you found out, because I want to buy one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Gary's friends were unhappy. At that point, they were like, listen, we know you think that kid is funny, but he's a little weirdo, and Mm. we don't want to be around him anymore. Um, He wasn't really getting any more attention at the paper, so he quit. And his dad was livid. Like, you have to go back to college. And so his dad just made the demand, finish one class. One class, that's all I ask. So Herb chooses a class in anatomy, and his dad is like, wait, you want to go into medicine? This is great. Uh. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Herb was trying to indulge his morbid fantasies, and he actually was super bummed out to learn that he wasn't going to get to autopsy autopsy a body in anatomy 101. No, not 101. And I'm like, sir, you got to wait till you're like in med school for that. Yeah, sorry, buddy. But he did attend. And instead of focusing on fitting in, he focused on studying. And that class, he was doing great. Focusing on school also helped him blend in with the other students because he wasn't bringing up weirdly inappropriate things all the time. Mm -hmm. He showed up neat and clean and did his work, and it made his dad happy. Awesome. So he got some newfound success, and that bred confidence. So he was like, I'm going to start going downtown in Indianapolis. And I'm going to start going to the drag shows and the gay clubs. And instead of taking the hearse because it was so ostentatious, he would take public transportation. The hearse would be awesome to drive. In the late 60s, there were a lot of young men in their early 20s questioning their sexuality. And he bled it. He blended in very easily. Mm -hmm. His dad was eventually like, okay, look, you take one class. What else are you doing there? Why are you always like out? And so Herb was like, uh, I need to find something that I can hide behind. Yeah. So he joined the Young Republican Club. Oh. He realized his dad would definitely like this. And he realized if he didn't tell anyone anything about his life or his real interest, he'd be fine there. Mm-hmm. For the first time in his life, his family's wealth actually was helping him because when you're wealthy and part of the Young Republicans, it's a good thing. <laughs> you fit right in. Since he wasn't making gross jokes at the group meetings, girls started noticing him. One particular girl named Juliana Sater was a high school English teacher who was attending class at Indiana State part-time. The two bonded over cars, and they seemed to actually be kind of a good match. Um, 
But Herp was kind of in this weird sort of moral quandary. He was like, I can be the man my dad wants me to be. I can get married. I can become a career man. He's like, you know, or I could indulge my darkness and really be, you know, revel in being the corpse-defiling gay man I've always wanted to be. I mean, he could... Also, really interesting that in his head, this is, you know, nothing to say anything about LGBT people, but in his head, he viewed being someone who wanted to, like, assault corpses on the same level of deviancy as being being gay. Being gay? And that is entirely in his head. Oh, my God. Nobody else made that distinction other than her. No. It was like, like, well, I like to mess with bodies. So I, and being gay, so it must be just a gay thing. Well, because they were both shunned. They were both activities that could have you shunned, so they count it as the same for him. Well, I mean, defiling bodies, yes, you'll be shunned. I mean, in- Yeah, but in the 70s. I mean, I guess being gay sometimes, yeah. Okay. Pretty much, right? Not gonna, yeah. Never mind. Well- so at this point in his life, Herb still really cared about what his family wanted. And he still wanted to be a good guy. So he started dating Julie. That's what he called her. He called her Julie. Okay. That's cute. And he introduced her to his parents. He stopped going to the gay bars. Stopped looking for dead things to do weird things to. And to anybody just looking at him from the outside, he was a regular affluent white guy. Yeah, you just could, your typical chatter, John. You could just make the excuse of like going to gay bars there because they have great drinks. Okay. True, true, true. And so, <laughs> like, and the shows are awesome. So drag shows are fun. Yeah, like they're entertaining. Just go there. Who cares? Anyway. Well, he realized though he didn't want to go to college, and he was just like, "Listen, I think in my head I have a plan that could help me be more wealthy than my father," and his father was like. All right, we'll do it your way. So he went on a bunch of interviews here and there. Julie got closer to the family during this time. And this put Herb's mother in a weird place. She wanted to tell Julie, like, listen, my son's a very disturbing young man. But she also didn't want to mess things up for him. And she was like, okay, I bet you they're not going to get married or anything. So, like, once Herb relaxes and shows her what a weird little weirdo he is mm-hmm. julie's gonna leave and i'll just pay her some hush money and she'll we'll keep it moving okay well herb had a really hard time at job interviews he had a distinct lack of empathy and a very off-putting sense of humor so the problem was if you gave him a chance to show like he was a really hard worker he mm. would try really hard at whatever job he was doing but Like, he didn't know how to relate to people. And an interview is a very short moment for you to try and relate to the person across from you quickly. And there's just no way he could do that. Um, He was just striking out left and right, job interview after job interview. Um, Like, Herb's mom's still kind of wary of him. Mm -hmm. Herb's dad's only caring about the fact, like, listen, don't shame the family name, fam. (laughs) Herbert's brothers and sisters uh, have stopped talking to him at this point. His only friend and confidant was Julie. So they got married in November of 1971. Joke's on you, mom. Not surprisingly, Herb's mom thought this was a terrible idea, but they did it anyway. (laughs) The people who showed up were uh, Julie's family, his family, and all of their young Republican friends. Okay, cool. It was a very big social event because two wealthy families were getting married. Now, before they got married, 
Julie and Herb had no sexual interaction because Herb isn't into women and Julie was a devout Methodist. Mm, Okay. So she was waiting for marriage. After their wedding, however, Julie was like, let's go. (laughs) Get your ass on the bed. Let's go. (laughs) Herb had become this expert at pretending to be straight, but he really didn't want to consummate his marriage. So they bought this like small fixer upper in uh, the suburbs and Herb's initial plan after they got married was to just tire Julie out working on the house. Oh, my God. We're going to strip all the wallpaper. We're going to work on the garden. And they did everything together, which was, like, super cute back then. They mm-hmm. were like, oh, now we would look at it and be like, that's codependency. But back then, they were like, oh, look at this cute newlywed couple. They're fixing the roof together. They're doing wallpaper together. They're landscaping together. His attempt to try and tire her out so that <laughs> she, when they get back to the bedroom, she She's too tired to have sex. Oh, my God. Clean, planted, weeded. And then during, like while they were hanging out during the day, he tried to give her all this extreme aff- affection mm-hmm. and like show her that like he really cared about her. Just he didn't want her to touch him at all. Oh, my God. Like He would get changed in the bathroom. So they were never naked in the same room together. At first, like, she thought he was just being respectful and, like, not a pervert. And then she thought maybe he's uncomfortable with the idea of sex because he's a virgin, too. And then Julie started taking it personal. Yeah, yeah, I mean. Which is very common in relationships. I was about to say, I would have <laughs> taken it personal at first. Like, <laughs> like that would be the first thing, like, what's wrong with me? <laughs> what? What? Well, thing is, Herb was struggling through this as well. Because the more Julie came on to him, the more he, like, pulled away. And that's also when his mental illness began to kind of show through the mask that he was Mm. um, putting out to the world. About six months after their wedding, Herbert Sr. came to visit them at the house to see how everything was going, you know. Herbert Sr. had a bunch of plans for places that Herb could apply to. And Herb just agreed to whatever he said. He was like, yeah, sure, whatever. That was not the way their relationship worked. In fact, that visit, they didn't argue at all, which Herbert Sr. thought was really weird. Hmm. And when he left, he called Julie and he was just like, I would like to put him someplace. Something's wrong with him. And Julie was like, oh, absolutely. Oh, He seems real depressed. And so they... Had him committed in an institution. He had, Herbert Herb like he voluntarily went. Okay, he was like, "Yeah, I am very depressed." Um, however, once the doctors started talking to him, they realized there was a lot more going on than just like depression and stress. Mm-hmm. Um, Herb had pushed certain parts of his mind and personality very deep within himself for so long that he had trouble even talking to his therapists about it. And they realized that he had created a mental barrier as a way to try and protect himself from his hallucinations and ideation. And they gave him a diagnosis of schizophrenia that was later amended to multiple personality disorder. Now, I have to drop a caveat here. A lot of people in the 60s and 70s were diagnosed with MPD incorrectly, which we now know in 2021, we call it DID, Dissociative Mm. Identity Disorder. Um. Herb's diagnosis was later amended, like, back to schizophrenia, but at this day in the facility, like, they were giving him answers to why he felt the way he always felt. Okay. Um, I will say, Herb did disassociate 
we will, I will talk about that later on. Um, but I don't think he had DID. It what these, I don't think these were distinctive personalities. I think this, well, I'll explain to you in a second. Mm -hmm. So they're like, oh, you have multiple personalities. And he's like, oh, this is why I'm the way that I am. He's like, it's not Herb who's gay. It's another person inside of me. It's not Herb who wants to play with dead bodies. That's somebody else. Herb is a nice guy. No, no. And being given this uh, diagnosis mm. kind of broke him out of the depression. Because in Herb's mind, if he's not respons responsible for this mental health stuff, he's not responsible for what these other personalities do. You are absolutely responsible for your own mental exactly. health, sir. Exactly. Because I, that's what I'm saying. So they told him, like, oh, you have multiple personalities. And that he had created a barrier to, you know, stop the, the ideation and things of that nature. But in reality, this was him giving himself a get-out-of-jail-free card yeah. for all the horrible stuff he really wants to do. So after about two months in the facility, his dad's like, you need to release him. He's like, people in the community are going to start to wonder where he's been. And I don't need anybody knowing that a Bowmeister has been in a facility. Herb returns to Julia back to normal. With this new thought process about himself in his head, he's like, I think I can have sex. He's like, because listen, it's that other guy who wants to have the gay sex. Herb wants to be a husband. So I'm going to have sex with Julie. Okay. He still didn't let her see him naked, though. But at least he was, like, touching her now. So she was like, maybe, you know, he just has, like, low self-esteem. And I got to tell you, later on, Julie told reporters that in their entire marriage from 1971 to 1996, they only had sex six times. No. No. <laughs> it breaks my heart. Yeah. Herb returned to work with a job that his dad got him at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. Um, he was quick to learn, and he slowly let a little bit of his personality out to the folks he worked with. Now that he was in his late 20s, he had learned not to start with the raunchy stuff and mm -hmm. kind of work his way up. He was super quiet, actually, until someone did something wrong. And then he would launch into these, like, loud tirades about people being, like, inept. And it made his coworkers mad, but because his work was always done meticulously – no one ever had anything to say back to him. Right. Like, he's like, listen, you're stupid. And they're like, he's, you know, and they're like, well, you know, he's like, what about me? My paperwork's always done on time, Laura. <laughs> his coworkers hated him. His superiors were happy with the quality of his work. And they were like, honestly, this kid's got management material written all over him. Yeah. Yes. So, remember, he's in this mindset now where it's not him, it's not Herb, it's somebody else doing this stuff. Mm -hmm. So he tells Julie, listen, I want to spend like more time on my own. I know that for the first part of our marriage, we spent a lot of time together. But I just want to like spend time in the wilderness and like, you know, go out to do things. And so Julie's like, I mean, that's not crazy. I mean... We got a whole 18 acres of wilderness here, so go be in the woods. This is true. Like, What do you do with all that? He 100% was not going on drives and walks and spending time in nature. He was out cruising. And for folks who don't know what that means, back in the 80s and 70s and 90s, cruising was what you did when you were looking to have sex with a man. You went out to places specifically looking to fuck. 
I hate to say it that way. I'm so sorry. I tried not to swear this whole episode, but that's specifically what it was. Now we have dating apps and things of that nature, but this is what Herb was doing. He was like, listen, good Herb is back at home with Julie, Mm -hmm. the good normal man. He was like, bad Herb. Bad Herb, though. Is ready to get some D. We are here. Oh my God. <laughs> Haven't heard that in forever. Um, he didn't go out originally trying to cheat on his wife, though. He thought if he just like danced at the clubs and flirted with the boys and touched them, mm-hmm. that it'd be all right. It didn't work. That didn't really satiate his urges. So then he started having a couple encounters with men. And that also didn't satiate his urges. And that really upset him because he's like, society has taught me that men want sex. And this is supposed to be like a really important moment in your life Mm. when you do the sex. And I am getting no thrill from any sex with anybody. What? What is wrong? Like he's like, what's wrong with me? I don't. He's like, I thought maybe it was because I don't like girls. So now I'm doing it with guys. It's not doing it for me here either. Hmm. So Julie and her moved to a new bigger house. They started. Julie's like, I want to start a family fam. We've been married for 10 years. What the hell? And Herb's like, oh, damn. Fine. So while Julie is demanding sex from him to get pregnant at night during the daytime, Herb is going and meeting with prostitutes in the city. And that is when he began dabbling in violence during sex oh never with julie but definitely with men um that gave him more of the thrill that he was interested in um it started with uh one prostitute who actually reported him because while they were having sex herb leaned over and choked the kid Mm. and uh the police were like listen i'm sorry you're literally a prostitute what do you want me to do if you don't want to get beat up for doing your job, stop doing it. And because this was the eighties, and say, you know, we didn't treat sex work. We honestly, if we're, I'm really honest, we don't treat sex workers like they're people now. We're getting better, but it's barely any. Good. A little better. Yeah. Um, so, despite the fact that remember they only have sex six times in their marriage, Julie gets pregnant three times. Oh, well. so apparently he had some strong swimmers. <laughs> um. This, these children were all had while he was still working for the motor vehicle, the Department of Motor Vehicles. Mm. They had uh, their daughter Marie in 1979. That was 10 years after their wedding. Then Eric in 1981. And then Emily in 1984. Um, Herb very much wanted to follow in his father's footsteps and be a distant dad. But he just couldn't seem to do it. I mean, who would want to stay away from your kids? Well, here's the problem. So he only had a limited amount of like affection that he was like faking. Oh. So he pulled all of that affection from Julie and directed it to the kids. Oh. Oh. But then he kind of got annoyed because he was struggling to like do the stuff he really wanted to do because he was spending so much time with his kids. And with the stress of that, one of his childhood quirks popped back up. What do you think it was? Was it the messing with dead animals? Nope. Was it the the, the jokes? Mm-mm. <laughs> it was the peeing. No. He started peeing on his boss's desk. No. He's like 30 now. Oh, my God. No. <laughs> yep. And 
his boss suspected him, but there was really no proof. And it was like the the gossip of the office that like somebody was peeing on the superior's desks. And then one day he peed on an important document from the governor mm. and his boss called him in and was like, you can leave quietly because I'm pretty sure you've been the one doing this. Mm. And uh, he resigned. And that was that. Herbert Sr. arrived at his house and was like, what the hell, man? I've been pulling strings for you for a decade now. Like, you're really messing up your life. He's like, listen, the, the job market's not the same as it was before. Also, you getting older. This is true. Um, he's like, also, people know that you, like, suck. <laughs> so it's harder for me to get them to give you a chance. Like, I don't know how to say this, but people, like, he had a reputation now. And all the goodwill that they had earned at the wedding mm-hmm. of him, like, showing himself being this, like, poised, cool white guy. Right, right. Go forgotten. On. It's been too long. It's been, like, 15 years. Oh, um. So during this time period, Julie goes back to work part-time as an English teacher. And only job that Herb can really get is like a traveling salesman. Ooh, he does not have a personality for that either. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> well, I'm going to talk more about this in a little bit. I'm going to I'm jump from the timeline here. Okay. Because the time period when he is a traveling salesman lines up almost perfectly with all of the I-70 Strangler murders. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Um, like, after Herb died, the police looked up receipts, credit card records, everything. Mm. And they connected him to certain stops that he was at at certain times and people who got went missing from certain truck stops at certain times. Obviously, we can't prove it because there was no trial. Right, right. But it's very much assumed that that time period in his life, that's when he was getting the rocks off. That that's when he voted- started murdering people. Okay. Um. After, after he was a traveling salesman, it didn't last very long. Um, his dad got him an entry level job at a thrift store and it was weird because like her manager didn't seem to care about the thrift store and actively discouraged everyone from taking initiative <laughs> and then two years into that job Herbert Sr. died oh no Herbert didn't immediately spiral out of control though instead he focused his energy on a new path in life he was like I'm going to be an entrepreneur he thought he could improve upon what he learned at the thrift shop And he could take on the world of retail. So after Herbert Sr. died, he approached his mom and asked for a small loan. Herbert Sr. would have never allowed this if he was alive. Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth wasn't even super down for it. Um, She reluctantly wrote him a check for $4,000, which allowed him to secure a location. And she had a few contacts with local charities that he could work with. Herb gave his notice at the old thrift store the same day, and he and Julie set out to build a business called Save-A-Lot. Not the one in our state. It's spelled without the E. Okay. This is a thrift store, not a grocery store. <laughs> Look, I was like, Save-A-Lot? No, that please. I know. Um, but the first Save-A-Lot in Indianapolis opened on 1988 on 46th Street. It was backed by the Children's Bureau of Indi- Indianapolis, which was a well-respected, like, over-100-year-old charity that benefited local families. 
He kept like a meticulously clean store, unlike the place he worked at before. Mm-hmm. Um, they sold household items, clothes, secondhand goods, and it became a really popular shopping destination for the poor people in Indianapolis. The Children's Bureau loved how Herb and Julie managed things, and it was really good for their business, too. Their first year in business, Julie and Herb made $50,000 in profit. Mm. Which you normally don't make profit your first year in business. Yeah. Um, this gave Herb social capital in the community. They opened a second store the following year. And then like Julie would manage one store and Herb would manage the other. And then following that, they ended up getting a staff and they were able to have the business run completely separate from both of them. Nice. They moved out of the city and into the Westfield District in Hamilton County. Got a mortgage on a Tudor mansion named Fox Hollow Farm. It had four bedrooms, an indoor pool, a stable, and was situated on 18 acres of land. This was the life that Julie had always wanted. They may have only had sex six times in their marriage, but with a life like this, Julie's like, screw it. I'm not going to bother about it anymore. Oh, you got to think she was probably stepping out anyway. We're not going to talk about Julie like that, I, sir. I'm just, I'm just saying, like you got needs. She has, she had needs, has had needs, whatever. Okay, she's not getting it from her husband, so I'm just saying. It's very likely that Julie's still alive. There isn't a whole lot of like, she hasn't done a lot of interviews or things like that in mm. a very long time. Mm. Um, but considering the man who caught him is still alive and i can't wait to tell you about him he's my favorite person out of this entire story (laughs) and he's still alive he's like 85 so more than likely most of the people in the story are very much still alive except for all the ones that her murder right of course of course um julia julie sometimes thought about the long trips he took he would sometimes go to ohio and like he would come back and he never like they were supposed to be business trips but they like never added anything to the business but she was like, mm, whatever, luxury. Now, we're going to go back to the time period where he was a traveling salesman. Oh, goodness. Like okay. I said, it didn't start with him being a killer. It started with him beating up prostitutes, sometimes choking them out, realizing he liked the feeling of choking people out. He started picking up hitchhikers as he was driving down I-70 He would offer them rides in exchange for sex. Mm -hmm. Some of these hookups in CD hotels got violent. Um, And he realized probably at this point that it wasn't the sex that made him excited. It was the idea of having another person's life in your hands. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't know exactly which murder was the first, but... The general thought process is he would have picked up a hitchhiker, demand that the youngin would give him a blowjob, then pull off to the side of the road, tell the person to get in the back seat, um, make a point to open the glove compartment, you know, to grab the condoms, which also had his gun, uh, to let the person who was, you know, know that you couldn't just, like, not do what you said you were going to yeah. do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Um, and... Just at some point, it moved from fantasy to reality. And with all of the I-70 strangulations, they were just dumped randomly all over the highway. 
wherever he did it, he dropped them off. Oh, wow. Yeah, he, he didn't care at all. Um, there were even witnesses who spoke to the police about a man who looked like Herb picking up young men at truck stops on I-70. And there were even police sketches that were out during the time. But no one was going to accuse a well-respected member of the community who was helping a part of a charity. At the same time of these hitchhiker murders, there was another series of murders that happened on that same highway. But they happened at malls and shopping centers around the interstate. A man of the similar age and build to Herb would show up just before closing and shoot a woman. In about two months, five women were shot and one man. They believe the one man was an accident because he had long hair and was like skinny. Of course. Two more attempts were made, but uh, they ended up being failures because of the gun jamming. Uh, the police discovered that the gunman was using something called Jeweler's Rouge to keep the gun from jamming. Now, Jeweler's Rouge is a compound that's very fine and it's used to like buff and shine jewelry. It's also really great for getting out scratches on display cases in stores like Save-A-Lot. Oh. In fact, they used Jeweler's Rouge at Save-A-Lot. Um, Herb owned a twenty-two caliber pistol that was the same weapon used during these murders. No one made this connection while it was happening because killers rarely switch up methodology. I didn't make that connection when you were telling me. Wow. Um, I was like, oh, another guy's murdering. Imagine that. Um, it's very uncommon for sexual sadists like Herb to change methodology. Mm-hmm. You usually stick entirely to one form of murder because it's what gets them off. Um, and also strangling someone is a very personal way to kill someone. Yes. It's also very difficult. Um, some psychiatrists that I looked into said that with how often at this point Herb was disassociating, it's very plausible that he did not experience the shopping mall murders in the same way he experienced the I-70 strangulation. Right. Cause he's just shooting them in the malls. Mm-hmm. Sh- yeah. And he definitely had rage towards women. He, he disliked women having any sort of power over him, um, which will come into play towards the end of his marriage. Um, So that's another set of murders in the timeline here. Um, But it'll be another decade before anybody makes this connection. Mm. Now we're back to 1992. Herb is having big success with Save-A-Lot, but he is not happy at all. He's obsessive about his business. And Julie's like, I'm so sick of this dude. (laughs) Well, so what he was doing now to justify those long trips he was taking was coming back from his trips to Ohio with stuff. And he's like, this is stuff for the business, but there's no place to put it in the business. So he was just storing it in their house. So they have this 11,000 foot square foot mansion and is jam-packed with just stuff oh god like the pool in the basement Mm -hmm. was surrounded by mannequins no okay no because that's the place their garage was full to the brim with stuff so julie was always like mad at him about that because she had stopped working so she was in the house all the time Mm -hmm. she's like like why don't we get a third store before you buy all the stuff that goes into the third store um so Julie's like, listen, 
I am tired of living in a junkyard. So I'm going to go visit your mom. Uh, her, his mother had moved to Lake Wawasee after dad died by herself, you know, down great at the house. She has no kids there. Right. Um, and so that was a great solution for her. Now I don't have to see the family and I'm by myself. And Julie's like, I'm so sick of this dude. So she took her kids to the beach, to the lake for the summer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, this is a great summer for Herb. He was it just isolation was awesome. He's like, Julie's gone. I can be myself now. He's like, cause for him being around Julie reminded him of the mask that he had to keep up for society. Uh, wait, I thought, but he said that the good Herb was the one that liked Julie. <laughs> I think that was a lie. Oh, <laughs> um, see, cause that was, she had given him the mask. When she agreed to marry him. Mm. But he also felt like, he's like, if I don't do things the right way, Julie's going to leave me. And that is Julie having power over him. So he kind of resented her in that way. He also picked up a cocaine habit during the summer. Talking like 93. Um, Which did not help him become a more stable individual. No. Um, And in the past... The I-70 Strangler, as the I-70 Strangler, Herb had been dumping the bodies wherever he wanted. But now he's like, I got an 18-acre plot of land. I got an idea. And he's going to go back to cruising the bars like he'd done in college. But he creates a persona for himself. And he named himself Brian Smart. (sighs) (laughs) I knew you weren't going to like the fact that he had your name. God damn it. Well, hopefully he didn't spell it the same way. No, B-R-I-A-N. That's how I spell it. Oh, wait, you're right. That is how you spell it. Oh, my God. So it's exactly the same way. I was like, wait, are you a Y or an I? Listen. I'm one of the correct way. I only see your name like almost like every day, and I still (laughs) can't remember it. I'm sorry, fam. It's okay. (laughs) So Brian Smart was going to be like bigger and better and more flamboyant and... He was going to show up to the clubs with cocaine and be just vibes. Mm. And when he showed up with cocaine and this new vibe, everybody was like, yeah, it's pretty normal. He blended in perfectly. Mm. Um, He stayed in the background, looking, watching, waiting for new prey. The gauge scene had changed. Uh, There were a lot of older kinky guys in the scene now. Uh, People would see him and be like, you know, respect. Because Mm. after the AIDS epidemic, a lot of people had died. Because we didn't have any right. of the medications we have now right, right. Yeah. to save people from HIV. Um, so this personality, Smart, Brian Smart, would party with them. He would get them drunk. He would invite them back to his house when the bar closed. Offer for them to take a swim in an indoor pool. Surrounded by mannequins. Surrounded by mannequins. And then he would choke them to death with a a hose in the pool. Take them off, take off their clothes, wash their clothes and donate them to the thrift store. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. And then drag them right out the backyard into the woods of his own property. Like, in fact, when I watched um, the Fox Hollow documentary and 
the episode of Ghost Hunters where they went to Fox Hollow Farm too. Mm. Um, like when I say like it was pool door woods, like it was right there. Wow. You could just walk right out. And he would have a like a funeral pyre built in the woods, full of dead wood and dead stuff in the garden, and he would cover the body in gasoline and he would just burn it. But you have woods. Why don't you just bury them? Like, nobody goes in the woods. Uh, I and think he, he was a smart. I think Brian Smart was a smart boy <laughs> because DNA stays in bones that don't burn. Mm-hmm. The reason why we have so few of his victims identified is because of this. Okay. Um, the fire didn't really get enough to cremate the remains, so anything that was like left, he would just bury. This happened a few times that summer, and then a few days before Julie was said to come back home, he was like, all right, I gotta stop. He spent the week leading up to their arrival back to the house, cleaning up anything that he thought could be evidence. When Julie returned home, the house was still overrun with junk. And she was still upset with him because she's like, you are literally wasting all of our money on trash. Mm-hmm. Herb and Julie pretty much had a terrible winter. Uh... For Herb, it was finally after, like, letting the monster within him have free range all summer. He resented being, having to... Hide it again. Yep. And Julie was essentially home alone in this giant mansion with a man who couldn't stand her and was having a really hard time pretending anymore. Herb couldn't seem to care about anything, and his employees reported that he would show up. He would scream at them for minor indiscretions, which was just bad for business. Mm. Now, Herb wasn't capable of feeling any real emotion, but he had learned to read body language, and he could sense that something was going on with Julie. And he was like, listen, if she leaves, then she's going to tell all my secrets, and she's going to ruin my reputation. So, a few weeks before, it's like springtime, a few weeks before summer is supposed to start. So, this is now summer of 94. Mm -hmm. Julie's resolve is tested. Her loyalty is tested. She's sitting inside, looking at the garbage, kind of, you know, still pissed. Mm. And her oldest child runs into the house with a human skull and is like, Mommy, look what I found. And Eric is like, do you think this is from old times? At school, they told us that, you know, bodies turn into bones for like a long time ago. Fossils, yeah. Um, so she was like, well, at least he's not going to be traumatized. Um, however, she was like, I need to see where you found this. Mm-hmm. Um, she was understandably upset. And so when Herb gets home, she's just like, what? Why? And Herb's just like, listen, this was, a, could you know, a skeleton from my dad's office. He's like, I had it in the garage and I've been cleaning out the garage. So I just threw a bunch of dry, you know, garbage in the, you know, buried a bunch of garbage in the woods. Right, right. And he's like, listen, that had been in there for six months and you didn't even know it. Um, and he's like, I figured I should get rid of it before the kids poked around and got scared. He spun the whole thing so that Julie would feel bad. And then he blamed her for pulling all the rest of the bones out. And he even was like, oh, did you like, did the other kids see it? And she was just like, no, no, no. She was like, I made sure that the, the girls didn't see it. Um, he's like, well, you have to be the one to tell Eric like what this really is. Not that these aren't. Like a dead person. Come on. Not only did she tell the lie to Eric, but she also began coaching all the children on things that were house stuff 
and not house stuff mm-hmm. and things that they should not talk about outside. Right. right. Whatever lingering thoughts Julie had about the situation, she didn't say it. And she quietly took the kids to the lake for the summer. Herb jumped right back into hunting. About once a week. And he would never go back to the same gay bar twice in a row. He made sure his victims wouldn't be missed. But he started keeping the bodies a little longer. Having sex with them after they were dead, seeing how long he could use them before de- either he got bored or too much decomposition set in. He burned remains weekly on his property. Mm-hmm. And then he would load the ashes into a wheelbarrow and then he would scatter it around the property. Now, do you know, you know that cremated remains are not just pure ash. Yes, there are yeah, bone fragments in there. As right, well. everything doesn't burn down and what they have to use, it's called a cremulator and it crushes the rest of whatever's in there. Yes. He didn't have a cremulator, but he did his best to just kind of like, smash them. Yeah. And then he, when I say he would scatter them across the property, they were it was everywhere. Oh. He, like later in the summer when they find out about this, they find thousands of bone fragments everywhere in his kid's sandbox in the uh, garden. No. He just I don't know what he thought he was doing. Oh my god. But he really thought maybe that they were actually very small, but they were identifiable bone fragments. Could have just buried the ashes or something. This second summer's remains are the ones that actually can't be identified because they were burned and pulverized. Right. Um, I'm going to say as of 2021, only four bodies were ever identified. Oh, wow. Uh, Manuel Re- Re- uh, it's Re- Resendez, Johnny Bayer, Richard Hamilton, and Alan Livingston. So I watched a couple of TV shows for this week's podcast. Mm-hmm. And now I get to tell you about my favorite person. Okay. In this entire story, he's on he appeared on all three of the ghost TV shows. Ghost Hunters, um, he was referenced on Paranormal Witness and also in the Fox Hollow Farm documentary. Mm-hmm. And his name is Virgil Vandegreff. Virgil is a private detective who talks and walks like he is from a noir detective film, oh, but he him. is the real deal. I, love, I love this guy. In 1992, he was a retired major crimes investigator from Marion County who had opened up his own business that he still runs today called Vandergriff and Associates. His LinkedIn account says it's been open for 56 years. Ooh. He was a beloved detective in Marion County with his big bushy mustache and a gruff voice. He really only left working in Marion County because he didn't like their policy on missing people. See, back then, if somebody went missing, you had to wait 24 hours to even report it. And then you had to wait 30 days for a district detective to search for the person. And then it was sent to the missing person's bureau. Unsurprisingly, folks who went missing in Indianapolis were rarely found. Mm -hmm. Virgil correctly believed that as a private by he could just cut through all the department red tape and improve the chances of finding people. And so did his co-work, his former co-workers in Indianapolis. Um, when they would get a request about a missing person, they would file the report like they'd been told to do. But then they would also give the victim's family Virgil's business card. 
And finding missing people became the primary thing that they did at Virgil and Associates. So the summer of 1994, uh, a woman comes to Virgil. Uh, she's the mother of Alan Broussard. And uh, Virgil had, you know, like these were common, like, calls he got. Mm -hmm. Yeah. His first impression was that Alan was a young man, very healthy, actively participating in a lifestyle that would get him shunned by the public, prone to drinking. So Virgil's assuming he's like, Alan's probably going to be in a hotel somewhere, sleeping off a party weekend. But he's like, you know what? doesn't matter. I'm going to find the case. I'm going to take the case. Virgil wasn't super well versed on the gay scene. But that didn't stop him from doing his due diligence. Right. He began showing up to bars, talking to all the local leather daddies and drag queens. <laughs> um, he was very respectful to people. And they opened up to him in ways that they didn't open up to regular cops because before this, the cops were still doing raids. Right, yeah. He slowly built like a network of contacts within all the gay bars in Indianapolis. And when a young gay man went missing, he'd post their flyers in the bars and the nightclubs. He found a magazine called Indiana World in one of the bars and it had a story about a man named Jeff Jones who had disappeared in the summer of 93. It matched Broussard's case almost identically and even more like so Virgil went back and he got a friend from the Missing Persons Bureau to pull up Jeff's file. Mm -hmm. Not only was the case similar, like how he went missing, but they looked super similar too. Oh. So... He's targeting like the same Herb type had of a type. Yeah. All Virgil really had to go on here was two missing gay guys a year apart from each other from the same community. But his cop intuition was tingling. And he's like, mm, something feels wrong here. So he goes back to his office after pulling Jeff's file. And his secretary is comforting another lady. That's Robert Roger Goodlett's mom. Same story as both Alan and Jeff. And Virgil walked right out the door and went to his detective friends and was like, there's a serial killer in Indianapolis. Indianapolis PD weren't convinced. They were like, you don't have a lot of evidence. And a lot of the officers weren't particularly motivated to bother with a gay vigilante who was taking out gay men. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's how they looked at it. They're like, listen, uh, most people don't like gay people anyway. And here's some vigilante guy just killing gay people. So, like, why are we going to stop this guy? Uh. Only one other person in the department was bothered by this, like Virgil was bothered by it. And her name was Mary Wilson. Mary had worked in the sex crimes division, and she had trained in abnormal psychology, which is the study of unusual patterns and behavior and emotions and thought. Um, and it had served her very well in tracking down rapists and other sexually motivated criminals. She transferred to missing persons because those kinds of crimes take a toll on you. Mm -hmm. And also because Indianapolis had a massive backlog of missing people cases that had all gone cold. Now, Mary had made a connection between a spike in missing gay man and the rape and strangulations that were happening on I-70. She believed that their killer was one person, but she didn't have any support from the rest of her team. So Virgil was like, bet I got you. I'll help you. Mm -hmm. So the two start canvassing the gay bars together and they do everything they can, but their lead dries up midsummer. So they do the only thing they can do. They wait. And a week later, new evidence arrived. And that person's name was Tony Harris. Tony was friends with Roger Goodlett when Roger was alive. 
And when he walked in, like Virgil, after they started talking to like the the gay communities, Mm -hmm. a lot of people started stopping by Virgil and Associates and giving as much information as they could. And so like usually uh, her name was Connie. Connie would just like file the information and she'd give it to Virgil as like things about, you know, what was going on. But on this day, she buzzed Virgil's office and she was just like, Mr. Vandegrift, I think you need to hear this. So Tony tells him how the night before he had met with Brian Smart in the bar. He had noticed Brian staring at all the missing person flyers. And from the jump, he knew that something was off with this guy. And he decided he was going to follow through with his feelings. So he let Brian liquor him up. Take him back to his house. Tony was not interested in all in him, but he remembered that Roger had gone off with a man like Brian and never been seen again. So Tony went to Fox Hollow Farm and he pretended to be interested. He turned down more drinks to stay sober enough because he was trying to get as many details about him as possible. He ended up swimming in the pool for a little bit, but then he was like, crap, if I keep swimming, I'm going to get tired Mm -hmm. and I need to be able to fight him. When the time comes, because I think he killed my friend. So as he gets out of the pool, Brian's like, hey, I heard about this cool new thing. You know, it's called erotic asphyxiation. You can choke somebody while you're having sex with them and they like get kind of high. And before he even has it, like before Tony has a chance to say anything, like Herb wraps this cord around his neck and just yanks Mm. and starts like jerking him off. I know, right? Weird. Um. And, like, Tony has barely any moment to react. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's starting to pass out. And, like, Brian looks down at him and is like, Tony, are you dead? And when he opened his eyes, nothing there. Cold blank. And when Herb realized that Tony wasn't dead, immediately the the real person mask popped back up mm-hmm. and was like oh my god i'm so sorry i did read that like people can die from doing this i didn't mean to do that and tony kind of lost his cool and was just like oh you mean like what happened to roger goodlett an accident he's like oh what other accidents have you had and uh herb doesn't let the facade drop he just laughs and he's like ah you're drunk you should sleep it off and so he ends up sitting down in a chair near the pool uh-huh. And he passes out like right away because Herb is was loaded. He was high on coke all night. Oh, so he just like he's out. Yeah. So originally, like Tony, like grabs all his clothes and runs upstairs. And he's like, I'm just going to fucking book it. Mm -hmm. And then he's like, wait, he's passed out. He's like, I should look for clues. So he starts looking through the house and the house is full of so much crap. So he can't tell like exactly like who what stuff belongs to what. And then he goes, wait. He's got to have a wallet. I bet you his name's not Brian. Uh So he goes back down to the pool Mm -hmm. and he's looking through like his jacket, his shirt pocket. He picks up his pants. And right when he feels the wallet, he hears someone behind him go, are you trying to rob me, Tony? Oh, my God. So fucking creepy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm sorry. Tony's like, no, I was looking for keys because I have to go back to the city. I have work tomorrow morning. So he's like. You know, this was really fun. We should do it again. And like, Tony's like, yeah, totally, sure. And so uh, they agreed to meet at the 501 Club Mm -hmm. on Wednesday night. Tony goes straight to the police and the police are like, 
that guy was on drugs and you were probably on drugs and you need to get out of here or we're going to arrest you for being on drugs. Wow. Come he goes on. to the FBI office in Indianapolis and they're like, you are wasting our time. Yo, he just did something freaking brave as hell. Mm-hmm. Brave and stupid, but, you know, brave. Like, oh, my God. His third stop was Vandegrift's office. And when he told that story to Virgil, Virgil's like, I need you to talk to my friend, Mary Wilson. Mm-hmm. So they go talk to her. Um, Mary immediately puts him in a car and she's like, we need to go to the, the wealthy neighborhoods outside of Indianapolis. Tony's like, I don't remember the name. I just remember it was called something farm. So Mary takes him to every location she can find. Like there's driving around, stopping at every house that has like the name placard something farm. Mm -hmm. And he's like, everything looks different in the daylight. I I can't. I don't know what it is. is. This is true. So she's like, all right, we're going to set up like a plainclothes cop around some of the gay bars looking for him. And then, um, if any of you or your friends hear from Brian Smart, let me know. She's like, if I can get, like, go look for his license plate number. Like, when you see him at the bar, don't even talk to him. Go out to the car and get the license plate. Mm. And then as soon as I have the plate, I can arrest him. So the police were like, we're not going to be out there every night on what is not an official case. So Virgil's like, I got this. I will send some of my men to the next meetup. These cops suck. Brian doesn't show up. He stands them up. On the official side, the case gets pushed back because Mary has other cases. Mm-hmm. Virgil, however, is not letting this go. He sends one of his best men, Bill Hillsley, to go looking through other suburbs to find houses again. Bill finds a tutor with the name Fox Hollow Farm. He couldn't see a pool from the front, but he takes a couple pictures and he goes back to Virgil. Virgil's like, I'm pretty, this is it. It's got to be it. We've looked at all the other houses. So he goes and has aerial shots done on the property and shown to Tony. Tony's still not sure. Virgil tries to get the Hamilton County police on board, but they're not having it. Because they're like, listen, there's no crime that happens in Hamilton. This is the richest area in all of like the uh of this like area near indianapolis there's no way we're letting you just randomly start an investigation into a serial killer virgil pulls the public records and sees that the house is owned by the bowmeister family virgil sends bill back out now herb had stood tony up because he knew he fucked up mm-hmm. he laid low but it made him very unhappy and julie came back early so he was extra snappy with her. Save a lot's taking a dive as people are quitting because Herb's showing up every day and cussing people out. Yeah, because he's high accusing on the staff of Yup, because he's high on drugs. You are absolutely right. He knew it was a matter of time before the charity pulled out and then he'd have to close this door. Julie's gonna leave him. Um, so Herb made the connection that when he was killing, he's successful. And when he stopped killing, he's not successful. So obviously the clear path here is to keep murdering people. No, obviously. Oh, my God. Well, he dressed up, went to the bar, and he met a guy. And when he introduced himself as Brian Smart, the guy jumped out of his seat and yelled to the bartender, that's Brian Smart. Uh (laughs) The whole bar just stops dead silent and stares at him. Herb's like, I don't know what's going on, but I'm out of here. So he hops in his car, and before he can speed off, somebody gets his license plate. Mm. And that man is Tony Harris. Nice. 
He sends it to Virgil. Virgil passes it on to Mary. By the next morning, they know that Herb Bowmeister is the owner of the car, the house, and a local thrift shop. Virgil's convinced that this is their guy, but Mary can't get the police on board. So she takes a cue from her days back in sex crimes, and she's like, screw it, I'm going to go talk to him. She meets him at work, and she asks him about the attempted murder of Tony Harris. He's like, oh, what are you talking about? That's crazy. And so she also is like, you know, well, what about Johnny Bayer or Alan Broussard or Roger Goodlett or Richard Hamilton or Stephen Hale or Jeff Jones or Michael Kieran or Manuel Resendivez? She she really got him flustered. And then she tried to get him to, like, get permission to see his house. Mm-hmm. And he's like, listen, I, I don't sleep with men. I'm a married man. I'm respectable. I'm not a pervert. And she's like, well, then you have no issue letting me visit your property. And he's like, ah, no, nice try, bitch. But <laughs> <laughs> he was very hostile. He was just like, nice try. He's like, but uh, you'll, you'll have to have a warrant for that. Mm-hmm. So when Mary leaves, Herb's just sitting there thinking about it, and he's mad, but he's like, holy crap, Julie's name is on the deed. He's like, so he calls Julie up right away, and he's just like, listen, the cops think that, like, I bought stolen goods, and I told them that they can't go into the house. Okay. So by the time Mary arrives at Fox Hollow Farm, like, maybe, like, a half hour later, Julie had already been briefed. And she's like, listen, there's nothing stolen here. My husband already told me what you're doing. And Mary's like, I don't give a damn if anything in your house is stolen. She's like, every stitch of furniture in that place could be stolen. She's like, your husband is a... a murderer yeah you're i'm looking into your husband because he's a suspect in a series of missing men and julie actually laughed in his face and was like are you kidding me her boy and her to fly but mary gave her the card and left a week later julie calls mary screaming she's like the cops are ruining my marriage she said that ever from the moment that herb met mary mm-hmm. he started freaking out he refused to leave the house. He was constantly checking the windows to see if anyone's there. He wouldn't even go out to the garden behind the house. Like, he was super paranoid. Children's Bureau had removed themselves from Save-A-Lot because they were like, this is, no. Well, The story, uh, like, at this point, the story is definitely going to go down. Yeah. I've, Julie had asked Herb to calm down and go to the lake. And he's like, good idea. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. I'm sorry. No, and then I wanted to say, um, yeah. like, yeah, he's freaking out after he met this cop. Mm-hmm. So doesn't that, like, raise flags in your head that, like, maybe he's, like, you know, well guilty of something? I love Julie in this instance because what she says is she's like, listen, calm down. Why don't you just go to the lake with your mom? I won't even bring the kids there because oh. she's like, um... You need, a, like, a moment away from all of us. Oh, I know what's going on. <laughs> Herb jumped at the idea, and he left town. Julie filed for divorce the day yep. he left. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and then she called Mary and went, So, one time last year, I found a whole pile of bones in the backyard. Um, also, you're totally allowed to come search. Yeah, absolutely. So, police found the pool that... Tony had told them about. They also found a hidden camera down there, but there were no tapes. They found bones and blackened teeth all over every part around the house. It took three days and they found over 5,000 bone fragments. Herb actually ended up going to like pick up Eric from daycare and like, like summer camp 
I don't know what he, it was either school, like around that time. It was, mm-hmm. it was July when this happened, like end of June, July. Um, and Herb actually um, holds Eric hostage. And he's like, he's like, I could use Eric to kill Julie. Like, who knows what was going through his mind at this point, but it doesn't yeah. matter. Knock, knock, knock. The police show up at his door. They're like, yeah, your wife filed for a divorce and she's been given, granted temporary, full custody of all of the children. You have to hand over your son, Eric. Mm-hmm. Mind you, he only picked up Eric. He left the two little girls, which I'm like very what, confused what, about. Where are the girls at? They, they got them? picked up from school like regular. Why would you? Yeah, that's weird. Hmm. After that, her vanished. Mary thought about it for a couple days and then she released the findings and like the video of the police and stuff at Fox Hollow Farm to the public. Um, she hoped putting his photo out there would have folks respond and flush him out pretty much. Mm-hmm. Herb's brother, Brad, called Mary and was just like, yeah, Herb is telling me he's stranded in Canada and he lost his wallet. So he asked me to wire him five thousand dollars. Herb would be seen one more time alive in Canada. He was sleeping in his car near a bridge and a Canadian trooper stopped him and was like, bro, you you can't sleep here. Right. The trooper made a, a point when he was like interviewed that the house was like full of stuff. Like not the house, the car was full of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Herb drove into Pinery Park near Ontario he wrote a strange, rambling, three-page suicide note where he did not mention being gay or murdering anybody. He said that the reason why he was killing himself was because of his failing marriage and that he had ruined the store. He ate a peanut butter sandwich, and then he blew his brains out. Huh. July 3rd, 1996. He was 49 years old. While the police still believe that it's a suicide, there are some loose ends when it comes to Herb's suicide. Most of those items that were in his car that the trooper reported when he saw him on the bridge were not there by the time U.S. officials arrived. Those that like the trooper actually said that there was a whole case of tapes sitting in like the passenger seat. Oh, they were all gone. Now, a lot of people think that he threw those over out. Yeah. While he was going because there'd be no proof of that he was gay. Um, but the gun was missing too. And that has led to a lot of conspiracy theories that he was murdered or at the very minimum grave robbed. The gun has never been recovered. That 22 was never recovered. This is interesting. I know. Thought this has a whole lot of intrigue here. (laughs) After he was found dead, Police took their time collating his receipts and credit card bills from the rest stops on I-70, linking them to all the people who went missing while he was there. That is also when they made the connection to the shopping mall shootings, too. Virgil was given a commendation from the city of Indianapolis for his work, and he went back to running Virgil and Associates. Virgil had one more murder, though, that he thought Herb was connected to, but he couldn't prove it. Mm. One time while Herb was off on a trip, Herb's brother Richard had been killed in his home. Not that crazy. Richard lived in Texas. Okay. But the way he died was poignant here. He had been asphyxiated with a garden hose while he was sitting in his hot tub. The 
Police never had any suspects or leads, but Virgil is pretty sure that Herb did that too. It fits his MO perfectly. Yeah, it really does. Water, asphyxiation, and with a hose. But he just left the body there. He didn't. Just left it. Hmm. The total official death toll that we have officially is four. They can only confirm four partial skulls found on the property. The rest of the bones were too degraded due to fire damage to be identified. But based on the evidence they have, it is believed that he killed a total of 21 people. To this day, we are still finding bones on Fox Hollow Farm. The property was purchased by Robert and Vicki Graves. They were fully aware of what happened. Um, in fact, uh, the property had been put on the market for $2.8 million. And Vicky and Robert bought it for 900000 Wow. Steal. Wow. For an 11th. <laughs> like, and then they sold like eight acres to a man named Noah Heron, who runs a local winery and brewery. And uh, Noah recently got approval to sell three plots of that land. Oh, my God. Noah's like, listen... No ghosts where I'm living, so I'm cool. <laughs> no, they're bottling the wine. However, on the other side of the farm where the house is, mm-hmm. Robert and Vicky have not been so lucky. Both of them have reported seeing a man wearing a red shirt that beckons them into the woods. Um, their belief is that this might be one of the victims trying to show them where, where, where his remains are that haven't been found. Yeah. Um, Robert ended up letting a family friend and coworker named Joe LeBlanc live on the property because there's another like little smaller house mm-hmm. um, on the property. You can see it in the aerial shots. There's the main tutor and then like a tiny house nearby. What do they call those? Carriage houses. I was thinking, I was like ranch house? No, yeah, carriage house. Yeah, they call those carriage houses. Yeah. So Joe LeBlanc got to live in the carriage house and he reported loads of violent experiences. Door slamming open. Um, but the worst thing that actually ever happened to Joe was the fact that he was out behind his house in 2010 and he found roughly 75% of a human femur. Oh. I've seen the pictures. It is straight up thigh leg, what like the, thigh part. What the hell? Um, yeah. Uh, like I said, they've, they actually allow, they do five ghost hunts per year, only five. Mm. Um, the people who get to go, they pay $90 a person it's from 7 p.m. to 2 a.m. Yeah. Uh, like I said, the property is considered to be haunted as hell. Like, uh, they get, I've, I've, I heard EVPs from people who were there, um, things of that nature. And as far as the rest of the people in our story, why are you giving me that look? I just want to ask you about Ghost Adventures or what Ghost whatever. What, how, how their um, experience. They didn't get a whole lot of evidence. Um, there were a couple EVPs. Uh, mm. the other interview, the other thing that I watched was, was, uh, the investigation of Fox Hollow Farm. I was an independent, like ghost hunt. It's like an hour and 45 minutes no. and I had to pay $2 for it. So oh I wasn't very happy about it. <laughs> um, I wasn't really a big fan of the movie, but they did get some interesting, um, EVPs as well. Okay. Just really solid voices. Uh, but yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, the paranormal witness was just a reenactment of the same story that I just told you about what happened to Vicky and her husband. Right. Right. And right. that. Um, and like they firmly are like, yeah, we're 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 just kind of living with ghosts. Well, at least you're not living with mannequins. But it's, right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Julie and the children have remained off the radar. Okay. 
Virgil is still the cool, snappy dude that he was in the documentaries that I watched. Uh, he cracks jokes on Facebook and he really like he still very much believes in the art of policing and, you know, that people like him can do good. Mm-hmm. So of all the cases where I thought that, like, it wasn't the cops. Well, technically, no, Mary was a cop, but Virgil was a private investigator. Yeah. Virgil was was the winner here. He's a cool dude. Is a cool dude. Yeah. He yeah. even got his COVID vaccine. I saw that as well. See, look at posted that, that publicly. Look at Go this ahead, guy. Virgil. Yeah. But yeah, that's the end for me. Well, that's pretty awesome. I I I did like that story. That was a very interesting story. I went a little longer than normal. I'm sorry. It's okay. Uh, it's just gonna be a long episode. <laughs> I guess so. We'll be fine. Oh my god. But yeah, like just to go back to your story. Um <laughs> now now like I'm think I was like sitting here just thinking like who would have taken like what what would have happened to that case with the I'm pretty sure it had the tapes in it. <laughs> and if they had found that case of tapes, that was him videotaping everything he did. Yes. So that he could watch it. Cause that's the only way, like that's how it works with like the sexual sadists. Yeah. They take a an item, but he was afraid to keep an item, so he was giving away all that stuff to the thrift store. Mm-hmm. So this was his, his item to treasure. have. Yeah, his his treasure to watch what he was doing over and over after he burned the bodies. But unfortunately, what happens with all of the sexual sadists is that the tapes become not enough. Mm-hmm. They need more. He has to go out and keep doing it. Yeah. And the more you do it, like I said. Ed Kemper said it best. He said the urge becomes so strong that you start doing reckless stuff. Like, it's weird. I've never had any sort of urge at all. Any food, sex, nothing that would make me be like reckless and do something harmful to myself. But the, the urge to murder someone for the sexual thrill is so strong for them that they get stupid. Hmm. Happened to Bundy too. Yeah. The case that got him caught when he attacked that entire sorority. He had yeah. been holding in so long yeah. that he just went explosion and killed like three people. Basically, he's had to do it. Oh left loads of evidence because he was just yeah. acting at that point just carnally. Yeah, wild. Mm-hmm. Oh, goodness. So really, like, on one hand, I would love to, like, learn about this stuff a little bit more. But it's also, like, real rough. Yeah. Especially the crimes against women and, like, children and stuff. Because it do- does, like, they, the, it's not just men. They will do that to anybody. Yeah, they really will. Oh, goodness. I'm just glad no children were hurt in this story today. You are correct. <laughs> yes, I was happy to, to discuss something else. I do appreciate that. <laughs> I need a, a palate cleanser. Every time I do like one story that has like violence against kids, I have to take like a month off. <laughs> <laughs> like you, you get no more kids for the next month. Yeah. Oh goodness. Okay. All right. Well, today we're doing cryptids. Hey, another cryptid. Yes. So I noticed that a lot of cryptids they um. They have like these cute or goofy names like attached to them, like the Snallygaster. That's a goofy name. The what? The Snallygaster. I've never heard that name before. Oh my god, it's from West Virginia. Of course, I know about of it. Of course, everything is from West Virginia. 
Oh, it's not a gaster. Like the, the like, or you got like the um. I wouldn't say Yeti is like a a funny name. Okay. But you know, it's like you know, or uh oh, Ogopogo. What? Or yeah, I, I'll tell you about that one other time. <laughs> <laughs> or like Champ, or you know, Nessie. They got cute names. You know what I mean? Um, but they they have faces that aren't so fucking cute. Like the Snally Gaster face <laughs> is not cute. <laughs> um, but like a, like I love them nonetheless. Um, this goes for um the the this week's subject, uh, which is the bunyip. The bunyip, it's a cute. It's, a, it's a, can you spell that for me, please? <laughs> P U N Y I P. Bunyip. Bunyip. Why are you saying B though? I said B. I thought you said P. No, bunyip. B U N Y I P. Like Bunyip. All right then. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's a cute name. It's ugly ass face. Ah, uh, I want to see it. Uh, and I got pictures on the phone. I'm going to do a Google. Okay, yes, do your Google. <clears throat> so the Bunyip, originating from um, Australian Aboriginal folklore, um, and according to the. And according to them, the bunyip is a can either be a malevolent creature that lurks in the water, um, just waiting for someone to foolish, like someone foolishly, um, walk up to the water's edge, and they can have a juicy people nugget or a juicy animal nugget. There's so many conflicting pictures yep. of this. Uh, yeah, we'll get into that but later. Most of them, <laughs> it looks like a like a saber tooth ancient being. Yeah. All right. Yeah, we'll get into that. We'll get into that later. Okay, I'm here. <laughs> um. Oh, another thing. Uh, so, like I said, some people, uh, Aboriginal Australians, believe it to be like a malevolent thing. Um, some believe it to be like a peaceful uh, being as well. Is that distinctively like we talk about? Uh you know, the W's I don't like to talk about. Yes. And depending on the cult, like the, the different tribe stories, some W's are evil, like shamans Mm -hmm. and others are like people who resorted to cannibalism in desperate times. So like they have two entirely different motivations here. It's something like one is a super bad guy. And the other is like victim of circumstance. He's a dark hero. (laughs) You know, so is it like that? And that, like, some groups are like, well, listen, these bad guys are just bad guys. Yep. Okay. Yep, 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 basically. Alrighty, that's interesting. So, they uh, normally reside in swamps, or uh, swamps, creeks, riverbeds, um, and billabongs. I gotta tell you, cryptids are enough reason for me to never really want to go into the forest. <laughs> I've never been a big fan of the forest, but I'm, you know, now I can't even go up to the, the swamp water. Like, nah. what if I want to, like, you know, just dip my toe in? In the swamp water? Real, probably never. <laughs> um, listen, you can't, listen, you barely get me in the ocean. I And I really oh love water. But, like, not being able to see in the water mm. is what scares me. Get Clear water, cool. But not being able to see you never know what's in there. Yeah. This is terrible. Um, for anybody who doesn't know what a billabong is, I wrote the, the, the definition down. I'm be real case. honest. I oh, I only know billabong as a surf company. Yeah, so do I. Uh, well, so did I. Until I looked it up. 
<laughs> but a billabong is an Australian term for an oxbow lake, which is an isolated pond left behind after a river changes its course. Oh, yeah. that has nothing to do with a surfboard. A company? surfboard. No, it's like a really cool like nature thing. And maybe Billabong is from Australia. It like is from company. Australia. Yeah, it's an Australian company. Okay, but I'm like, just... it has not. It's just not even. It doesn't have anything to do with <laughs> ocean, though. No. You can't swim. You can't surf in a Billabong. It's just flat. You can't. You can't. <laughs> Uh, the- also, I'm very interested in the fact that, like, when in when a uh, a lake changes direction, mm-hmm. that happens often in Australia. I believe so, or like, I guess if it dries up a part of it, so it's just like, like it just pond. goes whoop, and it leaves just a random little dead end pond section. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Interesting, right? I've never heard of that in the like states, but now I want to see if that's happened here. It probably has. Yeah, we just called something stupid. Yeah, <laughs> in Oxbow Lake. Um, so the word bunyip originates from um, no, not from your grandmama's bunions. Um, <laughs> You're dumb. I know. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the mm-mm. is it an Aboriginal word? Yes. Okay. Uh, it's uh, one of the, the I guess you would call it one of the tribes or the groups, uh, the Wemba Wemba, mm-hmm. um, which are like like a tribe or group. Gotcha. Um, its name can be translated as a uh, devil or evil spirit. Ooh. Yep. I, and in my cryptid book, um, the was it A to Z cryptids? Mm-hmm. Um, it said it, it also could be translated into bogey okay in australian so listen i got nothing about things that australian people say yeah <laughs> so I who had... knows but yeah like from what i read it, it's like devil or spirit or evil spirit is what it's mainly like reference says so it just eats people that's the, the general consensus here not all the time i mean it could be that it could, it could be a good thing not all the time sometimes it doesn't kill people all the time yeah um in the 1950s the name could have meant imposter or mm. pretender um that intrigues me yeah like could be something um at another time it was uh, used to describe, like, the word bunyip was used to describe um, Australians that wanted to become aristocrats. So, there's a legend of a man named Bunyip um, who had broken the Rainbow Serpent's greatest law. Oh, I know about the Rainbow Serpent. Oh, look, I'm glad you do. It was... It- <laughs> oh gosh it was covered um in one of the magic treehouse books that i read to my kindergartners at the end of last school year yeah they had the magic treehouse book they had to like go back to australia and they ended up learning about aboriginal like uh mythology and the rainbow serpent was part of it oh my god that's awesome that's so wild (laughs) but um he broke the. Oh, but what's awesome. the 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 rainbow servant? Is just a deity, though. Yeah. So, like, so the what was the number one rule? Uh, he ate his totem animal. <gasps> you can't be doing that. I know. Um, to those, 
unaware, like myself. But yeah, uh, the rainbow uh, rainbow serpent brings the water. Important, mm. important. So Especially that, with how hot Australia gets, they need true. that water. Um, a totem, a, a a totem is a natural object that can be a plant or an animal. It's uh, inherited by members of one's clan or family mm-hmm. as their spiritual emblem. So they are um, extra important and and pretty much every uh, every indigenous Aboriginal like yeah. And they should be respected. It's it's also super personal. So while I can say that I have a totem, mm. I'm not gonna talk about it. Of course, <laughs> I wouldn't ask you to. It's we have a family animal. Mm. And you have your own. Okay. At least in our familial affiliation, it could be entirely different mm. in Aboriginal tribes. But yeah, totems are super important. Yeah, they like I I read a, a they define your role in the community or something like that. So yeah, I was like, ooh, ooh and it that's... presents itself to you over your life. So he did a bad bad thing. Got it. And if anybody who doesn't know what the Rainbow Serpent is, uh, it's basically <laughs> a, a creator god. Um, and seeing as this god basically created the animal that he ate, um, I can see why he needed to be punished. Well, yeah. He's like, <laughs> listen, not only did I make this creature, but this is my special creature. I like, I bonded. Yeah. I vibe with this creature. It's my buddy. <laughs> And then you just gonna come over and eat him? Yeah, bruh, no, no chill. Bunny Up has no chill. So could have just stayed eating the humans, fam. Uh, yeah. Well, he was a man. he was a man who ate an animal. Oh, and then he became the bunny. Got you. So yeah, after he ate his totem animal, um, he is banished and then transformed into an evil spirit. I don't know why you would punish someone by turning them evil, but well, isn't it like? Is it maybe? I mean, listen, we have like the situation with like Lucifer and Christianity, where like he was a good guy, and then he like stepped to God, and God was like, "Ha ha, no, <laughs> boop, curse." What you mean? You got question and, uh, okay, me? And then, yeah, I guess, you know what I mean? Yeah. So like, it maybe the fact of being cursed is the thing that made it evil. Yeah. Okay. 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 Um, but yeah, it became like an evil spirit that lures uh tribesmen and their animals into the water to eat them. I mean, since his crime was eating, uh, it, it tracks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you mentioned this thing's description, right? It just—it's <laughs> just all over the place. Right? There's lots of different pictures and drawings. It's all over the place. Hold okay, on. so most of them look like creature, big teeth, sharp mouth mm-hmm. in the water. What's the one weird one that looks like a walking squid? That's the one that kind of weirded me out. That looks like nothing <laughs> like the pictures on Google. I know. Okay, so what I'm showing you, Brittany, is a picture of an Aboriginal's drawing. See, I trust that one more then. Of what the bunyip looks like. I trust that one then. Yeah. Because the pictures on Google don't oh, have a right. Cave drawing. I don't know, why do I say cave drawing? I don't know why. It's, it's one it's, of their drawings, it, yeah. It's, it's one of their drawings, though. It's a drawing. Um... But yeah, that's kind of. They also drew on wood too. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Did not know that. So, as far as what this thing looks like, it's hard to pin down. Um... <laughs> <laughs> so, if you live in Australia and you're worried about a bunyip, it could be anything. You have no idea what you could find in the water. Oh my god. 
so but they, they are usually like one of two things um they either look like they had the body of a seal mm-hmm. um they basically look like a seal that looks kind of a little bit like a manatee but with a tiny head yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. um or they could be creatures with long necks and small heads um looking like the head of like a horse or i think very confusing there was one that was like described like an emu that would be a really good way to like get people to like get in the water because you stick your little horse head out of the water and people are like oh no that horse is drowning then you go in and it's not a horse it's the bunny up and it's about to eat you flashbacks to never to the, the never ending story oh my god it's okay oh, well <laughs> it is horse drowning <laughs> I'm sorry to make you sad. No, it's okay. Um. Anyway, they're they are amphib- amphibious. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are also nocturnal, and apparently, if they lay eggs, they lay them in a platypus nest. Oh. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, platypus are ruining the platypus. Platy- they're gonna wake up and eat all the platypus. Platy-pi? Platypi. I don't know. <laughs> I love that we both have the same moment of <laughs> how do we say the plural of this word? So it took me years to learn that actually that platy- platypus lay eggs. I did not know this for a it's while. It's their defining feature. They're that, mammals that lay eggs, sir. I thought that they, they had duck bills and they that had was beaver it? tails was like their defining features. Oh, <laughs> I thought it was always the babies. I didn't the know that they, they have eggs for like the longest time. Weird egg live births. So, oh, here's an interesting fact about this bunyip. Okay. Um, one of the ways that uh, they kill is by hugging their prey to death. Oh, very oo-woo. Yeah. <laughs> so, I have some sighting accounts, of course. Oh, I'm here for it. Okay. And you live to tell the tale. Very cool. I know. So, apparently, in the 1800s, was probably the best time to catch a glimpse of the bunyip, apparently, since... So industrialization industrialization really ruined yeah. the bunyip habitat. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, because it counts, like, people were just seeing this thing left and right, like, in the 1800s. is ridiculous. Hmm. Um, so I'm just going to put this out here. But the, you know, aboriginals of Australia had been telling tales... Of the bunyip for a very long time before any European settlers uh, came to the area. Just... I mean, I'm be real honest here. European settlers came and they didn't exactly treat the Aboriginal people nicely. This is true. So I doubt they were really paying attention to what was being said. Like I'm sure somebody was like, "Listen, I know that you're new here, but uh, y'all want to go out at night." And then I'm sure some like random colonialism, you know, colonialist was like. What? Don't tell me what to do, people. You can't tell me what to do. Can't this, tell me what to do. In this land where you lived all your life, you had generations of people living here. How dare you? Okay. Off camera, I was telling you about that lady on TikTok who's dealing with that guy who said that like he owns her land. Yeah, yeah. He was yeah. on some podcast talking about treaties and stuff, and I was like, "Bruh, can we not?" America doesn't care about any treaties. <laughs> Please take it from someone with indigenous family. Please. <laughs> like oh my God. treaties, uh, gone. But European settlers were told a tale of the bunyip, 
and like their their children, and then the settlers. You know, they you know we're told by the Aboriginal mm-hmm. Australians, and they then began to call basically any mysterious creature that they saw. Of course, a bunyip. Oh God! You see a kangaroo? What's that? A bunyip? Oh no! <laughs> What's Does that, that mean they would kill him? Because I'm, I'm not sure. Oh, I hope not. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on a sec. Because you told me like one time when we were talking about Australia that they hunt kangaroos. They do. Technically, they're sort of pests, but I still like them. <laughs> they like eat them. And sometimes they have like too many like we have with deer in yeah. our state. And you got to like, you know. Population control. Yeah, population control them. Because, I mean, some of them do get to be big hosses, and they are rather aggressive. Yeah. So, I mean, can you imagine, like, moose just being allowed to just run around around here? Moose? No. Yo, they are awful and scary. No. No, thank you. No, thank you. I don't want to see a big giant moose in the middle of the street. Ooh. So, yeah, it's kind of like that. Like, you know, we got to get rid of these big angry boys. Okay. But, yeah. But, yeah, I still feel bad that they have to kill that kangaroos. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, to us, it's exotic, but to them, it's like another fucking day. No thank you. Um, but yeah, kangaroo, bunyip. Platypus, bunyip. Oh, God. <laughs> um, but after a while, they actually started, you know, using the name for the actual creature or animal, whatever you want to call it. Um, so, in 1818, explorer Hamilton Hume, 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 probably. Hume. Um, yeah. Uh, find some large bones in Lake Bathurst. Okay. Um, this is one of the sacred places of the aboriginals. Mm. Um, so the bones were described as looking like a hippo or a manatees. Um, Big boys. Yeah. I, I guess he was um, he was tasked to recover the bones. For examination, but for reasons, uh, he didn't go back to the lake. Various reasons. I try to look up like why, you know, follow links and stuff. Because he's scared. That's why. And, like the the link was like dead. So I was like, oh, <laughs> I will never know why he never went back to the lake. <clears throat> In 1821, Edward Hall, uh, he was a politician and a journalist, says that. He's seen a creature. He's seen a creature with the head of a bulldog in the very same lake that uh, Hamilton had found the bones. Um, interesting, right? Interesting. Mm. Interesting. <laughs> he went back a year later and he saw the creature, but this time it had a long neck. I don't like it. <laughs> In 1830, more fossilized bones were found, and even more reports of the sightings were like happened. So this is this happened at Lake George. It's another sacred place to Aboriginals. 1845, you guessed it, more fossils. Um, now the word bunyip is actually now. Like written or printed in an article. Oh, so they actually start using the word bunyip now, and they start talking while they're talking about the bones. And this, like, as I was researching this, 
I I noticed that they started they they were calling Aboriginals blacks, and I was like, huh. There's a lot to unpack with the feeling of that stuff. So I was like, this doesn't make me feel good about reading any of this. Yeah, a lot of colonial racism happening in the 1800s. Yeah. So, okay, so I have this news clipping. Okay. I got to read to you because in in this news clipping. um, Trigger warning, inappropriate language. Basically, I'm not trying to read the blacks part, but I already said it, whatever. (laughs) Okay. Um, Let me find it. Hold on. It is titled Wonderful Discovery of a New Animal. Okay, and I'm just going to read the the one part. Well, it's actually a long quote, so bear with me, please. <clears throat> so, at, in this uh, in this article, they are they are um, interviewing Aboriginals, and you know they're telling them about the, they're showing them the bones that they have found, right? And and they're telling them about this, you know, well, they're the Aboriginals. They're like. Oh yeah, that's a bunyip. That's from a bunyip. Like they they can they can see the bone and they're like, oh yeah, that's from the bunyip. Oh wow. Yeah. So I'm I'm gonna start this quote from like in the middle of the sentence. So another stated his mother was killed by one of them at Jesus at the Bar One Lakes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Within a few miles of Geelong, um, and. That another woman was killed in the very spot where the punt crosses. I'm guessing it, it's blacked out. Jesus one. Christ. Um, the bar one at the South Geelong. Um, the most direct evidence of all was that of Mama Balron, uh, who, oh, that was his name, Mama Balron who showed several deep wounds on his breast made by the claws of the animal. So this man was attacked by the bunyip. Uh, another statement was made that a mare, the property of Mr. Furlong, was about six years ago, seized by one of these animals on the bank of the Little River and only escaped with a broken leg. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> They say that the reason why no white man has ever seen it has yet to see it. Okay, I'm ready. Is because it is amphibious and does not come on land except on extremely hot days when it basks on the bank. Wait, are they saying that white people don't swim? I, I guess. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. You white folks, you're not <laughs> suited for the water. Oh my god. You don't have gills. There's another there's a- <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I tried to keep a straight face. <laughs> I'm trying to find this other part in here that I liked. <clears throat> the bunyip then is represented as uniting the characteristics of a bird and of an alligator. It has a head resembling an emu and a long bill at the extremity of which it is transverse projection. I don't, I don't know. Whatever. I don't know. 
this is an old news clipping. Right. Obviously, 18, what did I say, 1845? It's, yeah. So, but yeah, they, um, they had a lot of accounts from, what we, what we, I'm, I want to say, I don't want to say natives, but they are natives of Australia. Yeah. So they're natives to whatever. It's just their preferred terminology is Aboriginal. Yeah. And then no, here I, we just say indigenous. No, like we're native to America. Right. So, but like nobody, like Native American is like. No, we're native to America. Though. Iffy language. Okay. <laughs> like. Uh, yeah. I know. I know. Are we really American though? American though, fam. Like, I mean, I live here, right? Like, we were born here, so obviously we were citizens. But like, ancestrally, your ancestors were like kidnapped and brought here, and my ancestors were kidnapped and brought here, or my other ancestors were like violently murdered, yeah, and put in you know Indian schools. So not cool. Not cool. Anyway, it's <laughs> <laughs> like, are we native? Is anyone native to anywhere? Not, not anymore these days. But anyway, back on topic. All right, 1846. Asshole Fletcher. Um, he finds a fragment of an unusual skull on the Murrum Murrum Bidji uh, River. Um. The skull was of an animal. Uh, um, oh, the skull wasn't of an animal. I don't know if I mentioned that in the first. No, I did not. Okay. <laughs> the skull was of an animal. <laughs> um, now, the unusual part. If you if you all sometimes wonder why Brian messes up, it's because he writes down this stuff by hand. And he can't read his own handwriting. I can read my own handwriting. It's just like sometimes I get really excited when I'm writing. So I like <laughs> scribble it down. And I'm like, so you can't read what you wrote. I can, <laughs> I can, I can read my own handwriting. Okay, it's just sometimes occasionally he has trouble like reading what he wrote down because I write tiny. It's not because he's not prepared. He has pages in front of me. I'm looking at them. <laughs> he's just like he gets lost in his own. I have to like put the pages up to my eyes so I can really <laughs> oh see God. it because I like my hair is getting too small for me to see it now. Oh Lord! <laughs> but the unusual part about this skull was that his eye sockets were very very close to its upper jaws so like imagine like i guess a deer skull or an, a cow skull um with his eye sockets like right on top of where the jaw was at the upper jaw okay um upon analyzing the skull at first it was from an unknown animal and then but later discovery said that it was part of a skull from a disfigured young horse or a calf. Um, so even though all this was found out about the skull, the skull was still taken to the Australian Museum in Sydney. Um, it was, I think it was like, it was called the purported Bunyip skull. Um, and it was displayed for two days. Then it disappeared. Okay. Uh, nobody knows where it went. So it's still lost to this day. So what could this be? What could this bunyip be? Um, now, this is part of the segment where I get to the debunking, which I love. Because I love all the little, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Maybe oh, it's this. okay. So it's possible that 
it's possible, but I'm going to say not likely, that the Aboriginal uh, Australians were just mistaken all along, um, is what Charles Fenner says, uh, stating that the Aboriginals called seals bunyip. Um, I mean, it, it kind of makes sense that since seals appear on, on you know, the inland, um, they have smooth fur, like the bunyip has smooth fur. And, you know, the seal, like, basically, it was a seal. It was a giant seal monster thing. Um, and, you know, like, same kind of eyes as Bunyip. Like, oh, I forgot to mention this earlier, but apparently the Bunyip has, like, an unusual roar. Um, same as a seal, apparently. So maybe the Bunyip was just a seal that was found. Okay. Yeah. So it's just a seal. As That's so anticlimactic. There's another. There's an, I got more. I got more. I got one more. Hold on. I got my phone out for this one again. Uh-huh. Where are my notes? There you go. Notes. So another possible explanation is cultural memory. Do you know what cultural memory is? Mm, can't say. So cultural memory is a form of collective memory shared by a group of people. So cultural memory is often stored in objects such as like museums or historical monuments. Say like um, we go to Washington, D.C. Go see the Lincoln Memorial or okay. the Washington Mo- Monument. Mm-hmm. That's sort of like cultural, a cultural memory. So because, because people will then tell you. About the monument, and then they'll tell you about the person associated to it. Okay. So, <clears throat> so think of think back, like with the the bunyip, the bones that were found. Mm-hmm. It's it may be like believed that the Aboriginals they they saw the bones, and you know the full fossil of this. Well, creature. so it's a fossil, <clears throat> so. It was a fossil, but then they st- they still said that they see the animal around too. So they're like, "Well, this is bones of this creature that we know." <clears throat> I mean, there's a big argument amongst the dinosaur community about how we can have pictures of dinosaurs when we don't know like how much of their body was muscle, how much of their body was fat. Yeah, we only have the skeletal bones, so like nobody really knows like if. A, you know, a triceratop was also a big squishy boy on top of having horns. This is true. You know what I mean? So in that vein, like, sure, they found a skeleton, but who's to say it was a, a big seal-looking weirdo? It could have been anything's bones. This is true. I mean, there's a picture of it being, like, a skinny-looking... Yeah, so bone. maybe that's why we have those <clears throat> crazy... Some people viewed it as a, a big squish, and some people were like, no, this is definitely a terrifying skinny creature. Yes. Now, this they, the, the bones could be of a... Or from a extinct animal called... That's, the, yeah, called so I'm the, thinking. Um, <clears throat> something Jurassic. Diprotodon. Di, di okay. Uh, it's a giant marsupial. So, makes sense. Maybe in the land of the platypi. Yeah, maybe that's it. That's so not the right <clears throat> word. 
It's whatever, platypus. Land of the platypus. <laughs> no, it's not even land of the platypus. I mean, that's for their mainly. Whatever. It's Australia. <laughs> <laughs> so, this creature is very, very popular. Um, well, from what I've seen uh, from the article I read. So, it's like. Like from what I saw, it looks like it's almost as popular as Mothman. Um, except not, I don't think everybody around the freaking world knows about it. Mm. Um, like if you're in Australia, I guess uh, South Australia or yeah, then like this has got to like be your be your Mothman or something. Uh, Unless there's like a creature that's like Mothman, then that's your Mothman. I'm not sure. Whatever. Or Mothman is your Mothman. Because Mothman travels around the world. Anyway, I've seen there's a statue of this thing. Um it's called An- Alexander. I Funny saw it. it. Yes. It's cute. And yes. it's got a little bag. Yes. Alexander Bunyip. I think there's a book about Alexander Bunyip too. Um like there there are tons of books about Bunyip. <clears throat> There's a song about the bunyip. It's in movies. It's in a video game. Um, have you heard of Ty, Tasmanian uh, tiger? Mm-hmm. Have you? It was in that. It was like a PS one, PS two game. Mm. Yes, yes. I I was very excited when I saw. It. I was like, what? It was in a video game. I love things that are in video games, and. It was in a Godzilla movie too, so you know, like when you when you get into a Godzilla movie, you're making it big. I guess that's true. <laughs> like literally, you're big. Well, yeah. All right. <laughs> when you become a kaiju, that's that's the yeah, dude, that's the pinnacle it... of cryptid. Yeah, like if you're a kaiju, then like you oh, as soon as the, well the Mothman, I guess there's a Mothra. Is the kaiju. Oh, yeah, that's what I got, Brittany. Yeah, well, that was an interesting one. Definitely something new. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Something different. Well, I guess we had a lot of fun today. Mm-hmm. I had fun. As usual, you can find all of the socials and connections and links and things on whenkillersgetcaught.com. That's links to the Discord, to the YouTube channel, which... Big ups to people who are listening on YouTube because it's like 80 hours of listening going on monthly now. It's quite a lot. I've got I, like nine, almost 900 followers. At a thousand, I can ask to monetize the platform. <laughs> you know me, always on my grind. Oh my God. But uh, yeah, always find me on Caught Podcasts on TikTok, Brian on Foxy Trainer on Twitch. Yes. And yes. yeah. Yeah, I was going to say something about emails. I think you can just find our email on the website, too. Yeah, you can send a message through the website. It's, yeah, I've been, I've, we've been getting, like... A, we've gotten a bunch, and people are just like, please cover this person. Yes, or they, they talk about their um, another creepy thing mm-hmm. in their part of their neck of the woods, which is really interesting. I like hearing stuff about like that. So, yeah, we're, we're, we absolutely do read all the messages. Mm-hmm. But, yeah um you guys have a good i guess weekend or week whatever yeah it says we we post this on thursday thursday (laughs) so so the weekend is coming have a good rest of the week